LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, the secret of self-motivation. Let's go back in time. It's 1897, and a middle-aged Frenchman named Paul Dumer has just arrived in Hanoi, Vietnam. As the newly appointed governor general, Dumer is tasked with making the Southeast Asian colony look and feel French. Give it a certain je ne sais quoi. So he paves wide boulevards and lines them with trees. He builds neoclassical piles that look très parisienne. And for his pièce de résistance, he decides to give the people of Hanoi that most French of modern luxuries. Indoor plumbing. To pull this off, Dumer constructs a massive modern sewer system, laying more than nine miles of pipe beneath the bustling city. But there's a problem. This sewer system, which was meant to be an emblem of European sophistication and engineering prowess, is soon overrun with rats tens of thousands of them, and those rats carry disease. Soon people are coming down with the bubonic plague, and rats born in Dumer's gleaming sewers are to blame. The French government needs to fix this problem and fix it fast. And in 1902, they devise a plan. They'll pay a bounty, one cent per dead rodent, to any Hanoi resident who delivers a rat's tail to City Hall. Before long, severed tails are coming in by the thousands. French officials are convinced that the rat problem will be dispensed with in no time. But then, something strange happens. Officials start spotting rats running all over the city, alive and well, except for one small thing. They don't have tails. It turns out that enterprising rat catchers weren't killing the vermin. They would trap them, cut off their tails, and release them back into the sewers to breed. New rats, fresh tails, more money. The French quickly cancel the bounty, but by now, it's too late. They had wanted to eliminate Hanoi's rat problem. Instead, the rat population has actually gotten bigger. This, writes Ayelet Fishbach in her new book, Get It Done, is a particularly salient history lesson on what happens when you reward the wrong thing. The lesson, she adds, is not that rewards don't work. On the contrary, they're an effective way to change behavior. But when you reward the wrong behavior, like paying a bounty for a tail instead of a corpse, you get the wrong action. The implications of Hanoi's botched culling were deadly serious. When the city's rat population surged, it led to an outbreak of bubonic plague that killed 263 people. The implications of picking the right incentives in our own lives aren't quite as high stakes, but they're critical nonetheless. Because if you want to achieve a goal, Ayelet says, then you need an incentive to get you there. She would know. Ayelet has been studying motivation for two decades as a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Now she's devised an actionable framework that anyone can use to achieve their goals. That framework caught the attention of our four Next Big Idea Club curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Daniel Pink, and Susan Cain. They recently named Ayelet's book one of the eight best of the year. Today on the show, Ayelet sits down with one of those curators, Daniel Pink, 
to talk about how you can close the gap between what you aspire to do and what you actually accomplish. If you've read Dan's bestseller, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, a book that genuinely changed my relationship to management and to life more broadly, then you know this is a topic Dan is passionate about. And I think you'll find that passion comes across in the conversation you're about to hear. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, everybody. This is Daniel Pink. Welcome to the Next Big Idea Club. We are here to talk about the latest book in our collection, which is Get It Done by Ayelet Fishbach. It's a fascinating and interesting book, chock full of takeaways and, and ways to think about motivation and apply to our lives. So Ayelet Fishbach, uh, welcome from your office at the University of Chicago. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I am very excited for our chat. So am I. So let, let's start our chat here with a little bit of personal background. As you know, as a, as a uh, social scientist, there's an old adage out there that all research is me-search. As I read your book, I was curious about that. Uh, there are two things. You grew up on a kibbutz. Tell us about your, your growing up and tell us about your first professional experience, which was, was actually in the military. Uh, yeah, yes, I, I would say that uh, now we are trying to understand whether people study the thing that they know best or the thing that they don't know at all. Okay? And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I'm at one or the other. I uh, grew up on a kibbutz in, uh, in, in Israel. Uh, uh, if people don't know what it is, uh, well, at least it used to be a very socialist uh, society. There was no private uh, property, uh, meaning uh, I didn't own anything for uh, uh, most of my uh, childhood. I uh, left the kibbutz uh, to the uh, army. I served at the uh, IDF and... Uh, discovered uh, Tel Aviv, discovered the option of going there to study uh, psychology, found uh, a way to get there. I actually had to take another year just to uh, save enough money because I didn't have any property. <laughs> I saved money to, uh, <laughs> to, to pay for college, got into uh, psychology and, and never uh, wanted to leave. So I'm, I'm still in what? that, yeah. What? Do you think that so so leaving aside the incredibly delicious irony of having somebody who steeped in a world of socialism ending up at that bastion of free market economics at the University of Chicago leaving aside that deliciousness do you think that those experiences shaped your your desire to study psychology in general and motivation in particular I grew up in a it's an environment that is uh, that is unique and that uh, uh, shaped my understanding in uh, unique ways. And, and I had these like, very uh, <laughs> sharp uh, uh, turns in, in, in my life. And that mm -hmm. makes you curious. And if you're in the business of studying how the situation influences the way people think, the way they make decisions, the way they, they motivate themselves, then... Moving from a place where what you care about is what other people think. It's not that you don't care about what other people think elsewhere, but where it's like you, you live with people, you, you are all the time with, with people, you, like you share your property with them, which is like 
my, my childhood, you are very sensitive to people. Uh, you are very observant. And then moving to a, a much more individualistic place uh, where it's about your personal uh, passions and, and what's interesting for you and just uh, sitting with uh, your books and, and your ideas. These things uh, shape your understanding and uh, in ways that... Uh, that are informative and and I think that this is definitely a big reason of why I am a social psychologist. I think so. I think it, I think it could be as, as the sort of the dime store uh, psychoanalyst here that it could be why you chose perhaps social psychology rather than developmental psychology or cognitive psychology. And it leads to, it's a good segue into your into your book. I yell it because um, you know at the at the top of your book about the science of motivation that draws on. Probably what what is it now? Probably twenty years of research that you've done in this in this field. You and and many collaborators who are named very generously in the book. You offer up the question, which is, how do you motivate yourself? But you also give the the, the super short answer, which is by changing your circumstances. And so I was curious, since your circumstances have changed so much, whether that gave you some insights into what motivates us and, and how to use motivation. Now, let's go directly to the book. The book is, I think, you know, I'm a big believer as a writer in structure. I think structure is everything. Tell us how it's structured. Okay, so what I discovered as I was writing my book is that motivation science, that is the motivation interventions that we developed as a field, fall into four categories. And that was the big aha moment for me that uh, was the discovery in, in writing the book. Uh, and then the book is organized by these four parts. Basically, they are interventions that we use in order to uh, to set better goals, in order to set our goals in a better way. This is the first part. They are all the interventions that we use in order to monitor our progress, in order to go from here to there to learn from feedback. This is the second part. They are interventions that we use to manage multiple goals, to resolve self-control conflicts, to, to find balance in our life. Third part. And then the, the last part are all these interventions that uh, use the people around us, that uh, uh, refer to how we seek social support, how we work with other people on shared goals, how we use the support of our individual's goals. So I took the basic principle that you change your situation to reach your goals, you change your circumstances and explored it in these four areas of motivational interventions. Sure. So we want to choose our goals. We want to monitor our progress as we pursue those goals. We inevitably have to juggle multiple goals and we are going to want to or need to enlist social support in meeting those goals. So it's a lovely way to think about it. And 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 what I think what's interesting is that they're discrete takeaways in each of the four sections, but there actually is some commonality. And I hope we can bring that out here in a moment. So let's talk about how do we choose our goals? I started writing down a list derived from your research and part one of how we choose our goals. And I did it in this very sim simple-minded formulation of X is better than Y. Okay. So, so, you, so I'm going to give you one of those and you can tell me whether it's right. And if it is, what, what we should do about it. So approach is better than avoid. When we set our goals, our goals where we are approaching something are generally better than goals where we're avoiding something. Is that accurate? And if so, tell us about it. This is accurate with one exception. Okay? Uh, oh, okay. 
<laughs> there is the exception, exception that uh, avoidance calls sound urgent. If I tell you that you should not yeah. eat red meat, you think that you should start now. If I tell you that you should eat more green vegetables, you think that it's okay to start next week. But with this exception that mm-hmm. refers to urgency, uh, approach goals are, are better. Uh, approach goals are more uh, uh, attractive, uh, uh, more uh, enticing. Uh, avoidance goals, do not goals, tend to bring to mind the thing that you are trying to avoid. So, you know, how do you know that you are not drinking, that you are not thinking about your ex, that you are not doing the thing that you uh, should not be doing? You check yourself and by the process of checking you, uh, you bring this to mind. So uh, this is one problem with avoidance goals. The other problem is uh, reactance. Uh, we tend to uh, uh, react against our avoidance goals. Uh, we want to do something exactly because we uh, right. set our mind not to do it. Give us an example of what an approach goal is and what an avoidance goal is, just so listeners understand the distinction. Then we'll move on to some other ways of setting goals. Good question. In uh, Dan Wagner's uh, old studies, an approach goal is to think about brown bears and avoidance goal is not to think about white bears. Well said. In, you yeah. know, our everyday life, uh, eat healthy food is approach, uh, avoid unhealthy food is an avoidance goal. Right. Okay. So it's not binary, but we want to tilt a little bit more toward approach than avoid. Now, you also make a very interesting point here, look, drawing on research about having means as our goals. So tell us about that, the difference between the means to achieve a goal and the goal itself and not getting confused on that and how that can interrupt our motivation. Yes. So to get your intuition of why it's not a good idea to set your goal as as pursuing a means, uh, think about how much we all dislike investing in means. We don't like to pay for parking. We don't like to pay for shipping, right? We don't like to pay for for gift wrapping. Uh, We don't like to invest in this case our money in something that's not the goal itself it's not the food in the restaurant it's the uh, valet parking to uh, to get there and that's true for other resources as well we are not excited about studying for prerequisite class we want to study for the class that we will take after we finish that right we don't like to do something that is not the thing itself And often by defining what we are doing as the thing itself, you get people to be more enthusiastic, be more willing to pursue it. And in my book, I I talk about research showing that if you set your goals as what you are trying to achieve and not the means, not the way there, not the the shipping, uh, then you're going to be more motivated. You're going to invest more. Tell us about, there's a very intriguing study that you did dealing with a signed copy of a book and a tote bag. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so a few years ago, uh, my colleague here, Richard Thaler, uh, got his book uh, out, Misbehaving. And uh, we uh, auctioned his book, his signed book, to uh, a group of our MBA students. And their average uh, bid was uh, around $23. We then auctioned at tote bag, a nice tote bag that actually cost about as much as the book, uh, with the book in it to another group of MBA students. And the average bid was $11 less than the $23 that people were willing to pay for the, uh, the book alone. So let me, stop, let me stop here for a moment just to put a very fine point on that. For, for the price of the book, they bid 23 For the price of the book and the tote bag, they bid roughly half. 
Yes, which means that in economic terms, the value of the tote bag was negative. <laughs> so again, I think this is so crazy, but tell us the point that it illustrates. You mentioned it before, but but let's put a fine point on it. Yes. So, you know, obviously it's, it's crazy and obviously people are not going to do it when you present the two deals next to each other. Okay. So if you can see that you can get it tote bag for free, then you're not going to say, don't give it to me. But if you just see the tote bag and you bid on the tote bag, then you're working towards a means. You're, you're not working toward the goal. You're paying for uh, for a bag that will only carry the, the free book. And that doesn't feel right to people. They don't want to invest in, in means. So we know that. So, so approach is generally better than avoid. We know the thing in itself when we set the goal is better than, than going, after the, going after the means. You also seem to indicate, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here, that fewer goals is better than more goals. Uh, fewer incentives are better than more fewer incentives. Fewer incentives. Okay, go ahead. Tell me. Tell us about that. Yeah. By the way, also fewer goals are probably better accepted. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, you're, you're exactly right. That's that, that, that's what I meant. That we sometimes that we sometimes try to have multiple incentives for the same thing. But what you're saying is like that can be confusing and diluting. Tell us about that. Yeah, so multiple incentives confuse us about the, uh, you know, the reason that we pursue our goal, okay? Uh, incentives, uh, in general, are, are mini goals, okay? They, they are the things that we get on top of the main reason that we do something, okay? So, you know, we uh, maybe we, we want to exercise in order to be healthy, and we also give ourselves in kind of incentives, like uh, you know, the, the nice coffee that you get after you, you exercise or, or whatever. Uh, as it turns out, when you add incentives, you often confuse people and ourselves about the reason that you are pursuing the goal. And so the, you know, the old research on over-justification found that when you uh, pay kids to uh, uh, draw pictures, they, they don't want to draw anymore. And what we found uh, most recently is that when we tell kids that food is, is healthy, that is that it will make them strong or help them learn how to count to 100. This were three-year-old kids, they don't want to eat this food. In a way, when the food only serves one goal, which is, I like it, okay, it's fun to eat, then people, kids in this case, want to eat it. When there are two goals, I like it, but I also get something out of it. Uh, the the kid or the adult is confused about, hey, wh why why do I have it? Okay, is it because it's good for me? Because there is a pay? Because the, uh, the I will learn something? I will be like, smarter? Uh, whatever. Uh, it, it just it's confusing. I think one of the interesting things here is that a lot of our intuitions about motivation are off. That when you actually examine our intuitions and and test them as you're testing them in experiments that. They're wildly off. Like if you, if you, if we were to pull people off this, I'm in Washington D.C. We were to pull people the streets off of Washington D.C. and uh, or or Hyde Park where you are, and ask people what the bidding would be on that tote bag and bat and book versus the book. Everybody would say, well, of course they're going to assign a higher price to two things rather than one thing. But that turned out not to be the case. I think that if you said that would tell kids that carrots help them read and count better. Some people might say, that's ah, not going to have any in effect. Some people might say it'll, it'll boost their, their consumption. But I don't think anybody would say it would decrease their consumption. Yes, I, I agree. They're not going to say that it will decrease the, yeah. the consumption. That was uh, quite counterintuitive. And, you know, uh, I often find that even if people have the intuition, 
unless they think about it, it, it doesn't come to mind. So as you go through your life, unless you stop to analyze, maybe if you analyze, you will get to the right answer, but you just don't analyze you. Now use your intuitions. So another thing that I derive from this, this is a pretty sturdy finding, but maybe you can explain why it's the case, is that intermittent rewards, intermittent incentives seem to be more effective than regular conveyor belt incentives. Yeah, th this is something that I, I actually test my uh, MBA students' intuition every year and they never get it. They always suggest that you need to reward the behavior every time in order to, to make sure that the person is, is doing it. And as right. it turns out, if you uh, reward behavior only uh, sometimes, uh, uh, people are more excited. Uh, they want to know whether they will get the reward, uh, what will happen this time when I try it. It's one reason why bonuses are often uh, more motivating than your base salary. We also know it from animal uh, research that uh, intermittent reinforcement uh, works partially because the animal or the person just doesn't know if the rewards are still in place. Okay, I don't know if the police is uh, on, on Lakeshore Drive today, so I'm going to drive slowly just in case. So intermittent is more effective than, than regular, which again, I think... You know, might I think when we explain it, it makes sense. But I think our our gut instincts are often, as your MBA students' gut instincts were, it's like, well, no, you have to be regular, you have to be consistent, you have to be like that. Okay, here's here's another one. Okay, so we got this whole formulation going. In general, X is more important than Y when we're setting goals here. So this is a good one, I think. Excitement is more effective than importance. I think that's counterintuitive. That being excited about a goal is more important than the goal itself being important. Yeah, it is more predictive of whether you will pursue the goal. So whether you're excited about it is more predictive than whether the goal is important. So if you have an important goal of like losing weight, being healthy, that's a very important goal. But importance alone doesn't have a lot of predictive value about whether people pursue a goal. Is that accurate? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we set goals because they are important for us, but they variance that comes from how excited we are about pursuing them is the main predictor of success. That is, you you set your goal to eat healthier food because you, you want to be healthy, but then how much uh, you found the healthy foods that you like, how excited you are about the meal that you are going to have today, this is a better predictor of adherence to uh, your, your diet. Uh, we find this basically for, for every goal, for New Year's resolution, for exercising, for studying, for doing a, a, a good job at, at work, excitement is uh, what uh, predicts success. Now, this is not to say that people should resolve to uh, eat more ice cream and watch more TV, okay, which might be exciting. This suggests that once you have set your, your goal to eat what's good for you or, or exercise or, or whatever, if you can make it exciting, you have a better chance. I, I think that this is in some ways slightly counterintuitive that this idea that the, the way to motivate yourself, and maybe it's an American kind of puritanical thing, is to steal yourself, to tighten your resolve. And we don't go and say, well, why don't we try to make it more fun? Yeah, the, you know, I, I agree with you. And uh, this is, uh, this goes to the problem of not understanding that the way to motivate yourself is to to change your environment, to change your circumstances, to find the healthy food that you like. It, it, it's not really 
about willpower, or at least not just about willpower. It's not about telling yourself that tomorrow I'm going to be a much better person. It's about making my goals accessible and easy and and fun and being in a place where where that word comes to mind. And to to take it to one level, and you have a whole chapter on this, is to make them, to make your goals where you can inherently valuable so that the thing itself is what is motivating you. So we call intrinsic motivation. So you have a whole chapter on that. Tell us, let's 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 define intrinsic motivation because you do a very careful job in the book of saying what it is and also what it's not. Yes, intrinsic motivation is an awfully confusing concept. Uh, intrinsic motivation is the motivation that comes from doing the thing. So it's not from achieving the goal. It's not some long-term consequences. It's the value that we get from pursuing the goal. It's the the positive feeling that what I'm doing feels good, that it feels right, that it might be fun, it, it might be exciting, there might be a, some challenge that I uh, address as I do this. It's it, what happens at the moment. The misconception is to think that intrinsic motivation has specific contents, okay? that it's uh, uh, just about creativity. Okay, or that it is, uh, or curiosity, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, this is where it started. So the, the the story, the reason that we think that intrinsic motivation is curiosity is because back in the days, animal researchers found that animals are curious and they will explore the environment without expecting any reward. So the, so curiosity is, is intrinsically motivating and you know that created the confusion by which this became one of the same. They are not okay. Anything can be intrinsically motivating sure. if it is part of pursuing the goal, if the goal feels right to you. In certain kinds of sports, exertion is intrinsically motivating. So, uh, you know, and even you have the misconception that economists have, which is that intrinsic motivation is anything you don't get, is, is anything not involving pay. And it's not that. Yeah, making money can be intrinsically motivating. Now, it's not the best example for intrinsic motivation because yeah. most people, most of the time, think about their salary as something that happens later. Okay, I'll work now. I'll, I'll make my living you know, later. Uh, but it can be intrinsically motivating if it if is- If you're gambling, it can yeah. be intrinsically motivating. Exactly. Because it's, it, it's the instant feedback for- some kind of pursuit that you're that, that you're in. It's a measure of, it might not be the thing itself. It might not be the fact that it's denominated in dollars or rubles or whatever, but it's the thing itself. You're getting that instant feedback and you know how you're doing. Exactly. Uh, gamblers are intrinsically motivated to make money uh, and, uh, and it's exciting for them. It happens at the moment. It might not be good for them, but you see intrinsic motivation. And so once we understand that intrinsic motivation is that, the immediate feedback that this feels right. Now we can think about how to bring intrinsic motivation to the goals that are important for us, which might be exercising more than gambling. Right. <laughs> right. Generally, good life guidance. Less gambling, more exercising. It's probably a pretty safe life lesson here from my yellow fish box. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. 
A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Good summary here. So we know that in general, approach goals are better than avoidance goals. We know that excitement is often more predictive than the the goal itself being important. We know that in many ways, fewer incentives is more effective than more incentive. So we're getting better in the first part of the book at actually shaping our goals. And I think in some ways that's undersold in a way because the goals we set out, I mean, you know, it's like any kind of thing that is directional, sort of the trajectory that you're on is going to determine your core, uh, inherently going to determine your, your, your course. So setting the right kinds of goals is very important. Now we're in the next stage here. We've set our goals. Now what we have to do is we have to, to use your phrase, we have to keep pulling. We have to, setting a goal is necessary, but it's not sufficient because we have to continue with our with our efforts there. And there are, and and so let's talk about that. One of the most important things that you see that you talk about in, in sustaining a motivation is the importance of progress. Explain why that's important and then tell us a little bit about how we can harness that. Progress increases motivation. With progress, we feel more committed, we feel more able. For all or nothing goals, there's actually more than we get for our efforts, okay? If you think about four-year college, the first year only gets you a quarter of a college degree. The last right. year gets you a full college degree. And so nobody's quitting college in their last year, but about half of the people that start college will quit it yeah. in the first couple of years. So progress by itself increases motivation. And why is that important? Because for Every goal that we are pursuing, we can monitor our progress either in terms of the glass half full, okay, what we have done, or the glass half empty, what is left to do. And it's pretty critical that we get it right. It's pretty critical that at the beginning, when we are not sure about our ability or commitment, we will look back, okay, at our like baby steps, okay, at the things that we have accomplished. And after the midpoint, when we are pretty sure that we are committed, that we can do it, Look at everything that you haven't done yet. Okay, so this is this is this is really important, and I and I knew this research, and I use this. I actually use this myself when I run, and it's transformative. Up until the midpoint, the best way to sustain your motivation is to look and see how far you've come. So, if I'm going to run five miles before I get to the the two point five mile mark, I want to say, "Wow, I've run a mile! Wow, I've run a mile and a half! Wow, I've run two miles! Wow, I've run two and a half miles!" Then, when I hit the midpoint, I change, right? That's this is what your research is saying. And you say, oh, my gosh, I only have two miles left. I only have a mile and a half left. I only have a mile left. And I, and I think that's powerful on the sort of thinking about how the, all kinds of things. Is the glass full or is the glass half empty? We tend to associate that with optimism and pessimism. But you're talking about it in an entirely different sense. Yes, it's nothing about pessimism, optimism. It's yeah. just whether you look at what you've done versus what you still need to do. And it, it's not trivial for people. Actually, teachers often 
have the wrong intuition to start with negative feedback. So like the new student is like, give them low grades and then they will see improvement over the year. Totally the wrong intuition because if someone is starting something new and uh, and you highlight how bad they are and how far they are from uh, like excelling in the, in the subject, uh, that uh, is not going to help their commitment. At the beginning, look how far you've come. Past the midpoint, look how little distance you have to travel. I, I think that's that's been so useful to me. There is a difference that I didn't know about here on that on the glass half full, glass half empty, or sort of like you know, do you look back at what you've achieved or do you look forward at what you still have left to do? You say there is a difference between experts and novices here. Yes. So, you know, your running example was great, was very clear. Often our goals are now more ongoing eh? and yeah. it really matters of how much we feel that we are studying or we are already uh, the, the experts. For uh, a novice, it's better to look at, at what you have achieved. For an expert, uh, it's better to look ahead. So, you know, for me, I only wrote one uh, book. Uh, I should look at the book that I have completed, you, Daniel, should think about all the books that you haven't written yet. And uh, that keeps me up at night, every single night, I think about that. You also later in the book talk about feedback and you know, and how we get feedback as a way to sustain our progress. But you say that we, the way we deal with feedback for novices and experts should be different. Explain what you mean by that, because I think there's some really, really good guidance there. And we should give novices positive feedback. Uh, with expertise, people are more able to uh, to learn from constructive negative feedback. Now, it's always hard to learn from negative feedback, and I talk a, a lot about that. There are many interventions that we design as a field to help people with negative feedback, but it is much more possible when people feel committed, when they uh, they feel like the the expert. Uh, you know, I, I give the example of like a committed parent, okay? if you feel that your parenting is not going well, if you get negative feedback from you know, your family or from your, your kids, you feel that you should work harder, okay? you are uh, committed. You know, if there's another relationship in your life that is not very uh, committed and you, you get negative feedback, then you say, oh, well, I'm not going to keep in touch with that person. So, so when you're committed, you can learn from negative feedback. And, and actually, in some ways, our commitment to something plays a big role in our motivation. And even our behavior actually, so again, I think this is somewhat counterintuitive, our behavior plays a role in our beliefs about our own commitment. Yes. When we do something, we become more committed. And this is a, a basic principle in the, in the behavioral science. Right? This yeah. is self-perception. This is a, a dissonance not intuitive to people. Often, like, we exactly. say, Right, just do it, okay, and and evaluate your commitment after you do it, okay. Just like just try, it, okay. Just see how it, it works, and then think about whether you like it, whether you think it's important, whether you want to do it again. Let's take another beat on middles because you've done some fascinating research on midpoints and the effect that they that they have on us. Tell us what happens in the middle and what we should do about it. The, this is the middle of the academic term at the University of Chicago. And guess what? I had the fewest uh, people showing up to my class this week. So uh, this is the middle problem. <laughs> uh, we uh, lose team. Okay? Our motivation to do things uh, uh, is, is lower uh, and also to do it right, okay? uh, not to uh, cut corners, to adhere to our ethical or performance uh, standards. 
in a way, at the beginning, each action feels like it, it makes a difference. It matters. You expect to remember what you do toward the end. Well, you know, your last action will achieve the goal. So super excited. Uh, and also you expect to remember the, the things that you will do last. In the middle, the actions tend to feel like a drop in the bucket. And we don't expect to remember what we do. And this combination is not good for uh, motivation. So you should keep middles short. <laughs> middles are not good for motivation. Yeah, yeah. You also have one of my favorite studies, which is the study of Hanukkah candle lighting behavior that showed that. So Hanukkah is a, uh, a holiday that you celebrate uh, where one of the rituals is to light a candelabra that has eight candles. And what you'd found in actually tracking people's candle lighting behavior, which is freaking ingenious in itself, is that people were lighting the candles on day one and maybe a little on day two and on day eight, but completely sagging in the middle. So even our ethical standards can drop a little bit in the middle. What's an antidote for uh, addressing the middle problem? Short middles. Saving for retirement is a really difficult goal yeah. because the, the middle is your life. Okay? Uh, make it an annual goal. Okay? Uh, make exercising a weekly goal. If you have okay. a weekly exercising goal, clearly you also want to exercise next week. Okay? Right. By the fact that you made it into a weekly goal, you, you made the middle uh, shorter. Uh, just get rid of middles as much as you can. Good news for you geeks out there. According to a recent study from the Yale University School of Public Health, people who read books for at least 30 minutes a day live nearly two years longer than non-readers. Two years. But finding that time is not easy, which is why more and more of us are listening to books so we can take advantage of the time we spend driving, gardening, doing the dishes, taking a shower. Seriously, I have listened to books and podcasts in the shower. Am I not the only one? What if I told you there was an easier way to extend your life by reading books? Well, friends, there is the Next Big Idea app. Download it and you'll find 12-minute audio summaries of the very best new books read to you by the authors themselves. Listen to two a day. You'll get the key insights from two brilliant new books directly from the world's leading thinkers. And in the process, you might just add two years to your lifespan. We call these summaries Book Bites. There are hundreds of them in our app and we're adding new ones every single day. And get this, other book summary apps summarize books without the author's permission. So it's missing the heart and soul of the author. We work with the world's leading authors to make our book bites because we wanna give you the genuine article and help authors succeed in the process. A book bite a day keeps the doctor away. See for yourself, download the Next Big Idea app now. Like actually right now, pause this recording, go to your app store and search for Next Big Idea. Get smart, live longer. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. I'm going to read you two interesting observations that happen to be in my notes paired one after another. Advertising ice cream as kosher reduced non-observant consumers' interest in it. And mouthwash that burns is perceived as more effective than mouthwash that doesn't. What does that tell us about juggling goals? Yes. Yeah, so 
uh, I really like these studies. Uh, uh, what's going on here? Well, in general, we like activities, products, means that allow us to achieve multiple goals. Okay, this is what I refer to as feeding uh, uh, two birds with one scone. Right. Okay? Uh, it's uh, it's great. Okay? You, you can get uh, both like exercising and uh, spending time with a friend by uh, going with them to the gym. But what happened is that when a product or an activity or a means serves more than one goal, then it seems to have a weaker connection to each of these goals. And when the product that you mentioned serves two goals, but you don't really care about one of these goals, now you no longer see this activity, this product as serving the original goal as, as well. Okay, so the, the ice cream that serves both the taste goal and the religious goal, if you don't have that religious goal, then you just assume that it's not very tasty. Right. Uh, and I love the, the burning mouthwash example because this is a counterfinal uh, means. Okay, that helps you with one goal while interfering with the the goal to just have a pleasant sensation in in your mouth. It's a very basic low level goal, and uh, uh, the, the reason that people. Uh, uh, prefer that the burning mouthwash is that they think, well, if it hurts, then it must be great. Yeah, uh, We make it's this a, mistake all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, but that's interesting from a consumer marketing perspective. And again, I, this is, this is what I keep coming up. If, if you're, if you're, if you have your MBA students, all right, your MBA students have graduated, they come back to you and say, Hey, I'm working at a consumer products company and we're dealing with this, uh, this brand of mouthwash. And somebody says around a meeting, you know what we should do? We shouldn't make it taste pleasant. We should make it hurt. We want our product to hurt. And everyone would say, what are you crazy? What are you crazy? But it turns out that that hurt is a signal in, in a sense of the product's efficacy. All right. So uh, let's go to one last point here. I yell it, which is, um, I mean, some very interesting stuff because we are ultimately juggling multiple goals. And I think there's some really good lessons um, in there, multiple goals in terms of things that are related to each other, things that are not related to each other. And I think there's some good guidance in, in how we can juggle more effectively. That is, we've set the right goals, we're sustaining our progress. Ultimately, though, we're going to have a lot of goals. Uh, sometimes they conflict and sometimes they just distract. So you've got some guidance on there. Let's just go for a few minutes to the final part of the book, which has to do with, um, and, and in a way, it's a capstone to what you were talking about because. Uh, you say the way to motivate yourself is to change your circumstances. And the most, I think the most important component in our circumstances are the people we surround ourselves with. Uh, and so you talk about social support. Tell us about social facilitation. Uh, why is that important? Social facilitation happens when others uh, are around us and that makes it uh, easy to pursue certain tasks. Eh? It, it makes it easy to, to exercise or to concentrate on your work uh, uh, or uh, not to do anything just because others are, are there and they are around you and they are watching you. It's why many people choose to work in a cafe. Okay, is why oh, many people uh -huh. go to the gym, right? Why, why go to the gym? Like, maybe you could do the same at home, but uh, over there, people are going to watch me. And it, it's why records are being broken uh, when uh, the audience is there, when people are uh, watching you. Uh, I thought what was interesting is that you you have I, it's not I don't know if, I don't think it's your research but you cite research I think about how athletes perform better in front of a crowd uh, 
uh, rather than you know without a crowd. Uh, you also there's s- some interesting things about how even mental performance is better in front of people rather than solo. As long as this is a, a dominant uh, activity for you, as long as this is something that you are uh, good at, that you have practiced, that you did many times before, uh, if you uh, bring uh, the, the audience to watch a, a child uh, doing some uh, athletic performance, uh, that can interfere with your performance. Okay? My, my son might find it hard to uh, right. get the ball to the basket when uh, people are watching him. Right, because your son is what ten years old or something like that. And how did you know that? <laughs> well, it said it said in the book that he's eight, and so the book I'm assuming was written two years ago. So, using my incredible quantitative reasoning powers, I said he must be about ten. <laughs> I, I'm impressed. You know, uh, usually people don't update the ages of other people's kids. Uh, that's part. You know, it's like uh, we are we are circumstances, and one of my circumstances is that I'm a I'm a parent. So. Um, but leaving me aside here for a, leaving me aside here for a moment, let me d- ask two more questions that that re- sort of relate to this. One of them not directly, the other one more directly. Um, you also talk about learning from other people's mistakes and how we're better able to do that. There's some fairly recent research I think uh, that you've done. Uh, tell I thought that was quite interesting. That that when when we make mistakes, we often don't learn from them nearly as much as when we watch other people make mistakes. Yes, uh, this is research with Lauren Eskus Winkler. And what was interesting here is that in general, we learn more from hands-on experience. We learn more when we do the thing. But as it turns out, when someone else fails, that doesn't sting our ego. Okay, when, when someone else uh, gives the, the wrong answer, then I can remember the wrong answer and then fail that therefore the correct answer is the one that they did not choose. Uh, when people were giving the wrong answer, often they learned nothing. Often they couldn't even tell us what was the wrong answer oh. that they chose. <laughs> they so much didn't learn anything that they didn't even, like they suppressed the experience. They didn't even know what they were uh, doing there. Uh, and that is less likely to happen when you uh, watch someone else uh, failing, which I mean, we don't want people around us to to fail, but we want to share our failure with other people because even if it's hard for us to learn from them, we can help others. There will be more knowledge if we talk about failures. Yeah, and you make another very interesting point there that that failures are typically not public. They're not not well exposed. And so that's sort of inhibiting learning in the in the in the bigger sense. So maybe we should be watching, you know, you want to play tennis, watch YouTube videos of people perhaps hitting the ball the wrong way. So one last thing, you have chapter 14, and we'll, we'll end on this. You say that goals make a happy relationship. What can we learn from the science of motivation to improve our relationships? I'm assuming, you know, you're talking mostly about our romantic relationships, but just our relationships in general. What's a, what's a takeaway, an insight that we can derive from this research to apply to our relationships? Yeah, I talk about romantic relationships mainly because most of the research is on, on that, but it's yeah. not... Just okay, like uh, any relationship in our life uh, is uh, in somewhat connected to our goals, meaning that we uh, get closer to people that help us with our goals, and we move away uh, from people that are not supportive of our goals. And so, that the way to uh, strengthen relationships is to uh, to work on the goals, okay, to see how someone can be helpful uh, for our motivation. 
we uh, we see that our motivations are really the the feel of our relationships with the people uh, around us. Uh, we also uh, see that people are ending relationships when they are, they are no longer supportive. Once again, it goes back to the the this this big point that that our circumstances have a big effect on our motivation and. To some extent, maybe more than people realize, we have some sovereignty, we have some control over our circumstances. So, um, or, or am I overstating that? No, I, you are you're stating it right. I, I would say that I, I could mention the Maui and Pierre Curie story, which I think might uh, make it. Oh, sure. Funny. That's a, it's, a, it's a lovely story about a couple that um, supported each other and achieved at an extraordinarily high level. So, And, and I didn't even know about her, her daughter, but go ahead. So, uh, no, Marie and Pierre Curie, okay, the, the Curie family got more Nobel Prizes than you know, and any other family in the history. And uh, uh, basically, uh, Pierre insisted that Marie will get uh, the first Nobel Prize, will be named on their first Nobel Prize. That uh, helped her. She helped him with their discoveries. They had two daughters. Uh, their oldest won a Nobel Prize in, in chemistry uh, mm -hmm. with her husband. Okay, their uh, one daughter that didn't get a Nobel Prize married someone who did get a Nobel Prize. And so uh, uh, the family was just so supportive of uh, a family member's uh, scientific pursuit uh, in such an amazing level. All we need, we need, to, we need to get rid of the Kardashians and replace it with a show called The Curies. And that would be much more inspirational and useful. So Ayala Fishbach, what a pleasure talking with you, ladies and gentlemen. Her book with this brilliant orange cover will tell you how to get it done. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Daniel. Love talking to you. That was Ayala Fishbach speaking with our curator, Daniel Pink, about her new book, Get It Done. Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation, which was selected by our curators as one of the two best books of the season. No small honor. If you'd like to learn more about it, download the Next Big Idea app and check out Ayelet's Book Bite. What's a book bite, you ask? It's a 12-minute audio summary of the five key insights from a book delivered by the authors themselves. She's also made an incredible audio and video masterclass about the book, which you can only find on our app. Go to your app store and search for Next Big Idea today. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, what better way to connect with people you love, even people you like for that matter, than to share it with them? This is what we're all about here at the Next Big Idea Club, connecting people through great ideas and conversation. Thank you for spreading the word. If you leave us a rating and a review, we'll owe you one. Thanks to Atlas Obscura and Freakonomics for providing some of the details about the Hanoi rat massacre that you heard at the top. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnad. Sound design by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn always motivates us to get it done. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.